Exodus chapter 3, as we journey through the life of Moses together. Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 3 says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw, though the bush was not, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within. He said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, he said. Take off your sandals, for the ground where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you, just remember this, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. I'm going to do a little setup this morning before I actually get into the meat of the sermon, before we actually address this text together. There's a few things I would like to discuss as a family before we really dive in, because the next, this right here is going to inform our next four weeks. Our next four weeks are about um, journeying along with this Moses character. And um, it's arguable, if not even factual, that the Bible is the most read book of all time. And I know, the Bible is a collection of books, like there's lots of them, you know, 66 books, all in this one book. But for argument, for conversation's sake, the book of the Bible is said to be and is probably the most read book of all time, which make it the most famous book of all time. Also, the Bible has within it a lot of different parts. But I would suggest that maybe one of the most famous parts of the entire Bible is this part called the Ten Commandments. People from the Jewish faith know the Ten Commandments. People from the Christian faith know the Ten Commandments. People who are not religious have heard of the Ten Commandments. We have statues of the Ten Commandments in different places around the world. The Ten Commandments are a pretty famous thing. And so it's one of the most famous parts from one of the most famous books. However, a recent survey suggested only 17% of people of the Judeo-Christian faith, so people who are Jewish or Christians, can quote, the entire Ten Commandments, which is kind of funny to me. It's ironic. The most, one of the most famous parts of the most famous books that we all really like, you know, even as Christians, we know that Jesus fulfilled the law, and we have this condensed version, right, that if you love God and you love neighbors, then you're fulfilling the, all the Ten Commandments. So like, well, we got like the, we got the Sparks Note version 
of the Ten Commandments. We got to condemn Jesus, so we don't have to know that part, maybe. Maybe that's why we don't know it. I don't know. And, and honestly, you know, I forgot one of them the other day. You know, and I, I went to school to study this stuff. So 17% of Christians and people of the Judeo-Christian faith can't quote the entire Ten Commandments. And I'm not here to, like, get down on us for not being able to do that. I just think it's interesting. Like, what does it say about our ability to remember information? That this really famous part of this really famous book is hard to, to remember. A, a recent Gallup poll released last April asked a number of questions of Christians or people of faith in general, but I honed in on some of the ones that were specific to the Christian faith. And the pollsters asked a bunch of questions, but the one that I found to be the most important and the most interesting was this. Um, what of these seven reasons is the most important reason for you to go to church? So really, of these seven, rank in order the, the importance of these things for why you attend church. And so the seven were this. Um, a good choir, praise band, or music. So what we're just experiencing. And I think we got great music. I'm so thankful for our musicians. Um, they're amazing. Brooks, that was on his second time on the kit. You know, I'm proud of that guy. So we got a great team every week, every week. Yeah, yeah, amen, 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 amen. I wasn't doing that just to give y'all applause. I just, I believe it. I just think it's true. All right, so good music. All right, so that's one of the reasons of these seven. Um, religious leaders who are interesting and inspiring. Um, social activities that allow you to get to know people. Sermons or lectures that connect religion to your own life. Spiritual programs geared towards children and teens. Community outreach and volunteer opportunities. And then sermons or talks that teach you more about scripture. I want you to think of all those for a second. Like, What's the most important reason for you to be at church? Because the order of the thousands of respondents were, were this. The number one reason, 76% of people said the number one reason, 76% said the number one reason they go to church on a Sunday, is, or go to church in general, is sermons or talks that teach you more about Scripture. The second most popular, 75%, you know, put this as their second highest, sermons or lectures that help you connect religion to your own life. And then it's the things for our children and teenagers, then it's community outreach and volunteer opportunities. Then it's our dynamic leaders and social activities. And then it's the music, which was surprising to me. I mean, I, I'm being a musician, being a worship leader. I was like, man, you know, I, I thought that was like the most important thing. But apparently, according to this Gallup poll, sermons are really important. <laughs> which means, last April when I read that, I was like, man, I got to step my game up. <laughs> I got to get better at this whole preaching thing because this is, this is why people are coming, apparently. This is, why we're, this is why we're here on Sundays. You know, I need to make sure I'm giving the people what they want, which then got me caught in between um, attention in my life. You know, I think there's easy sometimes to get up here and just preach in a way that um, get people stomping their feet, right? You know, there's certain things that as communicators we learn how to say and cadences, you know. Um, but there's also, I think, that's juxtaposed against the tension of, of what God is calling us as preachers to say, which is, I think, a tension we all live in our lives. I'll talk about that a little bit more. So I've continued to preach every week um, since the time I read this you know, poll last year in Mobile and in Montgomery before I came here. And over that time, I've observed a few other things about sermons, about preaching in general. Um, the first is we crave information in a very specific way. And I think it's just due to the way that we learn, the way that we've been taught our entire lives. We've been taught since grade school that if you learn information a certain way and then you regurgitate that information back appropriately the exact same way you learned it, then you'll get something good will happen to you. You'll get a good grade on a test. If you learn this information, give it back appropriately, you'll get a good grade on a test. If you get a good grade on a test, then you can get into a good college. If you get into a good college, then you can get married. You can get a good job. If you get a good job, you get married to Like it's this whole path of if you learn this and give it back to us this way, then you will advance in life. And that's 
partly just the way we, as Americans and now as modern humans, the way we absorb information. We crave information that will help us advance in life that's very particular. If you give us these, like, this is why listicles, like, how many times when you're going through Facebook or Twitter and you see, like, the seven, you know, the seven ways to be able to read faster or the five things that will make you better at yoga or whatever it might be, you know, for me, you know, every time there's one that comes up that's like, Three easy ways to, to lose an inch off your waistline, like click. You know, I'm, just, I'm serious. I'm being honest. I'm being honest. So we, we like it if people give us very ordered information that we can absorb and then either apply it and or give it back in a certain way that will help us advance. So when it comes to sermons, we, we kind of look for the same thing because that's what we're used to. It's kind of similar to like class. It's a lecture. Somebody's talking to us and giving us information. So give us the five things we need to know about the Ten Commandments. Give us the seven easy steps to make us a better Christian dad or mom. Give, tell us what we need to know, the, the three things about the Beatitudes. Um, the funny thing is, Jesus never taught like that. And so it's hard for me, like, I want to do that because I like that. But I'm also thinking, well, you know, what am I called to do as a preacher? So the next thing I observed about preaching, and particularly in this congregation that I love, is that we like to be challenged. I mean, none of us like to leave here being like, oh, well, I didn't get anything out of sermon today. Um, because that's just like a bummer, right? We love it whenever, you know, the preacher, whether it's me or anybody else, when I'm sitting and listening to a sermon, I want somebody, you know, convict me to where, you know, just like my insides are reshaped from this like awesome feeling and it lasts for a little while until I go to like Taco Bell and then my insides are reshaped in a different way and I just, you know, I, I like to be, have that conviction and I don't go to Taco Bell every week, just some weeks, which leads me to the final thing I've learned or observed. Oh, the final thing for this morning, I've learned other things. But when it comes to preaching and this whole sermon thing, I myself cannot remember the major points of what I preached about five weeks ago, six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. Like, I write the sermons, and sometimes I'm like, hey, did I preach on that at one point? And so I find it ironic that we as preachers, sometimes we lament to one another. I don't think anybody's ever listened to me. They don't remember what I preached about. Or they don't remember I preached about that last year. Or they heard somebody else say something, but I'd already said that in a sermon. They don't remember that I said that. And I think it's, you know, the same reason why the Ten Commandments, the most, one of the most famous parts, the most famous books we hardly remember, is the same reason why, like, I struggle with the idea of just getting up here and giving facts and getting up here and just giving, you know, clever aphorisms or little nuggets of wisdom that will help you remember things um, or that, you know, that sound really clever because I don't want to just assume that everybody remembers everything I say. But if I were to ask you, what is in the Bible? What does the Bible say? Um, I bet the majority of you, the majority of us, would say, well, in the Bible, you know, there's stories about Jesus and his miracles. We could talk about, you know, the creation accounts and the story of creation. We could talk about Noah's Ark. We could talk about King David. We probably talk about Paul and his letters and say some of the things about grace and love and how we're saved by faith through grace. And, and, but we'd also put Paul in the context and be like, he was going to churches and preaching. It's almost impossible to talk about faith apart from a story. Specifically, when we talk about the Bible. The Bible is just filled with rich stories. And so one of the things that I wanna do over the next couple weeks, over the next four weeks, is appreciate the story of the Bible, and specifically one story in particular, the story of Moses. And I'm not gonna do as much um, you know, nuggets of wisdom. Sometimes I try to come up with like clever little, if you, you know, Quitters never win, winners never quit, things are eating you know, I might not do as many of those type things because I just want us to sit with these stories and think about what's going on in them. 
We're going to start in kind of a familiar place today with Moses. The story we read of the burning bush is probably um, one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, specifically about Moses too. We know about the, the Exodus. We know about the Red Sea. But we also know we love that story about the burning bush. And I think it's a great place for us to start. But over the next three weeks, after today, the stories will get a little more obscure. Maybe there's stories you didn't know were part of Moses' journey. Maybe there's stories you read but didn't understand. So for four weeks together, we're going to sit in storyland in a way. We're going to come together and appreciate the truth that is in the Bible because one of the things that the Bible doesn't have that we have since created through the Midrash, the Talmud, and all sorts of other commentaries from our Christian faith are the, like, the explanations of the stories, which is kind of what preachers do. We kind of help think through these stories. Um, but if you just read them in their own, there's some deep truth there that we just internalize in a way that we can't really explain. And so as we look at this story, I would like to offer a quick prayer. And just for a few minutes this morning, we're going to sit with the burning bush story, and then we're going to journey with Moses for the rest of the couple of weeks together, all right? God, I thank you for your word. Please let this word now speak to us. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. From the get-go, Moses is caught in between. He's, the story of him trying to discern between the divine calling on his life and what he feels to be more comfortable. He's caught in between what God wants him to do and what he wants to do. If you don't know the story up at this point, Moses was raised by the Egyptians and his mother put him in a basket and floated him down a river to keep him safe, which sounds counterintuitive if you think about it, put a baby in a basket and send him down a river. That doesn't sound like the thing that is the most safe to do with your children. But um, at the time, it was safer than letting him be thrown into the crocodile pits. But we got to keep going. We, we, we're not starting in the very beginning. We're jumping in right here in chapter 3. Because after he was raised by the Egyptians and after he fled Egypt because he killed an Egyptian, he ended up um, a few years later getting married. And his father-in-law, his name was Jethro, had him tending his flock. Moses was a shepherd. If you can remember some other stories of people named, who were shepherds, King David Jesus was described as a good shepherd. God in Psalm 23, the good shepherd. Shepherd is a sign of leadership, of being prepared to be able to take care of God's people. So Moses is shepherding, and all of a sudden, the text says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a fire on a bush, and he looked, and the bush was blazing, but it was not consumed. This is where things get a little weird, right? Moses is out there tending his flock, and, and all of a sudden he looks up, there's a bush blazing, and his first thought is, oh, shoot, a fire, or maybe I wonder how that fire got started. But as he looked a little bit longer, he realized that there's no embers, there's no smoke, there's, there's a weird fire, it, just, it was just a fire with nothing actually burning up. And so I bet his thoughts changed dramatically, like, what is going on? I have to go and check this out. Something awesome is happening, and I've got to go check it out. So as he walks over there, he gets close to the bush, and all of a sudden the Lord speaks to him and says, Moses, Moses, come no closer. Take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's when Moses realized what was going on. And he hid his face out of fear and reverence for the Lord. And then the Lord tells Moses why it is he's speaking to him. He said he's heard the cry of his people. God has heard that the Israelites are suffering, has seen their suffering in Egypt long enough, and says, I want to do something about it. I heard the cry of my people, and I want to send you to deliver them from slavery. I want to send you to Pharaoh to be the person that leads them out of Egypt. And if you remember, Moses kind of balks at that statement, right? He, he says, 
who am I? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? The Lord says, I will be with you. And Moses says, well, what if they ask me um, who sent me? Who should I say that your name is? Or what should I say your name is? The Lord says, tell them I am has sent you. In English, it sounds kind of strange, right? I am has sent you. But the Lord says, this is my name. Then the Lord says to Moses, he gives him signs for how things will work out. In the next chapter that we didn't read, he has him um, take his staff and throw it on the ground. And it turns into a snake and he picks up the st- snake and it turns back into a staff. And then he has Moses put his hand into his jacket and he pulls it out. It's covered in leprosy. When he puts it back in his jacket and he pulls it out, it's clean again. And the Lord said, these signs will help you. And then he said, if they don't, one more sign is this. Take water from the Nile. And when you take the water from the Nile River, you can turn it into blood. But even after all that, Moses still looks at the Lord, looks at the bush, thinks about, talks to the Lord and says, pardon your servant, Lord, which is Moses' way of saying, with all due respect, you know, Ricky Bobby style, with all due respect, Lord, I have never been eloquent of tongue. I am slow of speech. I have a stutter. The Lord said, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. And after all this back and forth, they go back and forth. Moses, I don't want to do this. I can't, what if they don't listen to me? I don't know your name. All this back and forth. Moses has done all this, says, pardon your servant with all due respect. The Lord just, he gets a little upset. He says, the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he, but he would not capitulate to Moses' complaints. He said, what about your brother Aaron? He speaks well. Speak to him and put words in his mouth. Take your staff and go. And the Lord sent him on his way. And after all the back and forth, Moses is out of excuses, and he goes to Egypt. Does this story, this encounter, sound familiar to you? And not just because you've read it before or heard it before, but maybe because it's similar to your own life. At times in my life, it is. It's very difficult sometimes to hear this story without feeling convicted about my tendencies to push back against God's calling on my life. Without my, 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 in my mind, I just, you know, God's calling me to do something or encouraging me to do something. I'm like, you know what? It's easier not to do that, so thanks, but no. Or has God ever spoken to you? Maybe he just said, encouraged you to do something. And not only did you not push back, you just ignored it. Have you, have you ever ghosted God? Have you ever tried to ghost God? And for those of you who do not know what ghosting is, I'll give you a little layman's terms from, you know, the kids these days. Ghosting is one of the things I, like, hate the most. It's like that and, like, genuine passive aggression, like my two least favorite things on this planet, other than sin. But, I mean, you know what I mean. So ghosting is when you intentionally ignore someone for a sustained period of time, and they know that you're ignoring them, right? So I'm not talking about, like, when you read a text and you genuinely forget to respond. Forgetfulness is, you know... I'm a very forgetful person. I know some of us will read an email and we'll be sure to be getting back to somebody and we'll just forget. We just will. Some of us are not as disciplined as others. That's why God puts other people in our life to help us with that. Like Brianna helps me to remember, hey, you're supposed to respond to this email or text this person because I'm bad about not remembering. Ghosting is different. Ghosting is when you intentionally, like you know that you should respond to this person, but you're doing it, you're not responding because you're conflict averse. Have you ever done this? I'm serious. This has become a very, this is an epidemic, I would almost say. Ghosting is when you're so fearful or apathetic towards someone else's response that you knowingly and intentionally refuse to respond. So it's as if somebody texts you multiple times and you have your read receipts on, so like they know you've read the message, yet you still don't respond, that's ghosting, all right? Or 
if somebody calls you like multiple times, leaves you messages, like, and then you still don't return it, that's ghosting. Or, this is my favorite, this, this, this is not my, actually my least favorite, students at Huntington do this all the time, drive me crazy. You text somebody, and they wouldn't respond to you, and then you'd be sitting next to somebody, and they'd text them, and they would respond to that person, and so you totally know they're ghosting you, like that is ghosting. And it's very popular nowadays because we hide behind social media and, that's a, and behind technology, and it's a conversation for a different day. But friends, I, I, I ask, because I'm ashamed to say I've done that a time or two, but the reason why I'm ashamed is because I think that when we do that, that practice has become so popular, and what fear is, what I'm fearful is, it is a fear-based practice. It says, you know, I'm not, I don't care enough about you to even have any type of conflict. You know, I don't want to make, be uncomfortable with my response. No matter what the conversation or problem may be, I'm just going to ignore it and hope it goes away. I tend to think that's something we do as God, don't you? We're afraid of what God might want us to do. We're afraid that what God is calling us to might be too hard. And so we just turn up our read receipts and shut down the prayer line and be like, you know what, eventually me and God will be better again because I'll just get through this season and I don't have to worry about that anymore because everything will be different. So I'm just, I'm good. Have you ever ghosted God? I know it sounds weird to say, you know, real 21st century is ghosted God, but I think it's something that, that we do because we're afraid of the things that God calls us to. In a way, we're a lot like Moses, right? In some ways, you know, Moses was, he was scared. He didn't want to go to Pharaoh. He might still be wanted for murder, right? He couldn't lead a whole bunch of people. He, he couldn't speak well. He couldn't, he didn't want to go, like, he, he, he didn't, like, know how to convince people that he was an agent of God. He came up with every excuse possible. He said, God, I don't want to do this. Please don't make me do this. And God kept having a response. But one of the things I think is different about Moses's story and interaction from ours is this. One of the things I appreciate is that Moses didn't give up on the conversation. Moses, though, was uncomfortable, though he did not want to go back to Egypt, he didn't just shut it down. He didn't say, you know what, God? No, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. There was back and forth. He was troubled. God even got angry. But we see this at other places in the scripture as well. In the Psalms, people don't understand what God is doing. And, and they cry out to God and say, God, where are you? Job is one of the best characters of this, who, who does not agree with God, but doesn't stop believing in God and stays in the conversation and, and says, God, why are you doing this? I don't understand and I don't agree. King David even does this at times. The prophets do this. Moses does not leave the conversation even when it gets uncomfortable, even when it gets terrifying, the prospects of doing what God calls him to do. And so, friends, I leave us with this from this small section of Moses' story this morning. Are you still part of the conversation with God? Are you still communicating with the Lord? One of the things Moses did initially, the very first thing, you remember what it was? He looked up from what he was doing. He saw something amazing, and he went to investigate it. How many times are we so trapped in our own bubble of life that we miss that God's even doing anything in the world? 
That's why I'm so thankful for David sharing about doulos. Like, it gives us an opportunity to raise our heads up and know that there's good work going on in the world. It gets us out of our bubble, out of our own you know, perspective of always doing the same thing every day. We've got to get the kids here. I've got to get to the job here. I've got to get a baseball practice here. I've got to get to my small group here. And we miss that God might be trying to say something new to us because we don't ever stop to raise our heads up and look for God. Have you been there? Are you there now? What does your conversation life with God look like? Do you still pray? other than for your meals? Are you still asking God, what is it you're calling me to? Are you even wrestling with God saying, God, that sounds really hard. I don't know that I wanna do that. Because at least then you have the conversation lines open. Are you ghosting God? This story helps us realize and remember that God has a calling on each of our lives. One of the things we're going to realize over the next couple weeks together is Moses was not some like extraordinary figure from the get-go. He was just a normal guy, shepherding his flock, doing what he thought he was supposed to do, hanging out with his family, working his job. And then all of a sudden, God came and called him to something great, something new, something dangerous. Is God doing the same in your life now? And if so, would you even know it or hear it? It's God calling you, not necessarily to, to quit your job and go into vocational ministry, but maybe participate in ministry in a new way. Maybe to, to serve in a new way. Maybe to give in a new way. What, what is God calling you to do? Because I believe, friends, this is one of my like, most faithful beliefs about you know, being Christian, is that God has a calling on every single one of our lives. God calls us all to be somebody and to do lots of things. And sometimes that calling might be for a short time where we do that and then God calls us something else. It's, you know, calling is, is a big conversation, but I just do believe, I just truly believe that God wants to do great things in and through each of you, each of us. So may we be a church who seeks after that calling. May we be a church who's not afraid of the conversation. Let us not ghost God. Let us not ignore God anymore. May we be a church who hears this story as our own and says, it might be scary, but here I am, Lord. Send me. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are working our lives, that you are teaching us what it means to be followers of yours. Convict us, move us, disturb us from our normal. Help us see the extraordinary. Help us imagine the possibilities of all the things you want to do. Help us to remember that you can do more than we could ask for or imagine. And continue speaking to us, we ask God, because we are good about forgetting to speak to you. So forgive us for our sinfulness. Forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ to you, our Lord, now and always. Amen.